You are tuned in to the Jackson Hole Connection, sharing fascinating stories of people connected to Jackson Hole. I am truly grateful for each of you for tuning in today. And support for this podcast comes from Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling, bringing the Jackson Hole community residential and commercial food waste composting options. Call 307-733-7678 for more information. Today I begin this episode with a quote from Confucius. Study history, study history. In history lies all the secrets of statecraft. And welcome to episode number 244. And my guest today is Peter Lin, a multi-generation rancher and outfitter right here in Western Wyoming. Peter's roots go back here in the valley to the early 1900s. And think about how does a family survive ranching and outfitting for so many years in this area? Well, Peter is going to share with us what it does take as he is now raising the next generation of the Lynn family right here in the valley. We also get to talk about where Peter goes for his outfitting and the designation of the forest, which he uses for his outfitting uh, services. So I, I think if you like a little bit of Wyoming history and the Great West, you will certainly be engaged and enjoy Peter's interview today. Peter, welcome to the Jackson Hole Connection. I am so amped to have you here today and get to hear about your family history and what you are doing to keep your family's ranch and generations still living here in this valley. Well, thanks, Stefan. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> I'm opening up the door here. Let people know. I tried starting a recording on a first piece of equipment. It did not work. You've been very, very patient with me. We're now on a different piece of software to get this recording going. I appreciate your patience. Some days things work. Some days things don't work. Isn't that the truth? I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if you get to experience that in your business. Oh, every day. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Well, Peter. You are one of the few people that are multi-generational that I get to talk to. Give a short brief of where you were born and raised and a little bit of background of your family history, please. All right. Yeah, I was born and raised in Jackson, Wyoming. I'm 47 years old. I am the fourth generation, and we live here on our family homestead in Wilson, Wyoming. Uh, there is a fifth generation. I have a six-year-old daughter, and hopefully she's going to take up the reins when I'm done. Uh, my great-granddad homesteaded in Jackson in 1905. He'd showed up five or six years earlier, and it took him a couple years to get homesteaded. And my great-grand or my granddad was born here. He inherited a big chunk of the ranch, and his sister inherited uh, the other chunk. And uh, my Dad and his brothers and sisters were able to buy it from their parents, and here we sit. That's beautiful. Maintaining and keeping a ranch alive has got to be way more difficult than just passing down a house. Oh, absolutely. There's something to do every day. And, you know, like I said earlier, like ranching in Jackson Hole, uh, it's not a great place. There's just such a long winter. You really can't grow very many cows, and then it's probably a little bit difficult to grow very much hay. So it's always been kind of anything you can do to hold on to your ground in Jackson Hole has been ranching. And 
outfitting has always been a part of what uh, sustained my family and allowed us to stay here. And you are now carrying on that tradition of outfitting. I am. Yep. Our current outfit is called Pendograph Outfitters. A couple of years ago, we bought a new permit from a, a great old guy named Paul Gilroy. And so we have some of our old permits and a few new ones. And we have a main camp up in the Buffalo River in the Teton Wilderness. What permit did you buy from Mr. Gilroy? Uh, he called it Gilroy Outfitting. So it was mostly up there in the Teton Wilderness. Um, it's on the South Fork of the Buffalo River. And we call the camp the Pendograph Camp, uh, which is kind of special for us because my great-granddad was in business with a guy named Slim Pendograph. And I guess people thought enough of him to name a, a couple different meadows. There's an upper Pendograph and a lower Pendograph meadow. And then there's a peak. And our main camp is right below Pendograph Peak. I've heard about in the wilderness, Teton Wilderness, of the thoroughfare. Is that where you are taking people? Uh, the thoroughfare is a, it's a really neat place. Uh, we do visit there a little bit. The thoroughfare is where several rivers come together, and that's on the north side of the Buffalo Plateau. The Buffalo River flows off the south side of the Buffalo Plateau. The thoroughfare uh, is where the thoroughfare river and the upper part of the Yellowstone River meet. And uh, I think that in the old days was probably where a lot of trappers meet, which is probably why they got the name the thoroughfare. Do you still trap? No. Still allowed? Uh, I think it is still allowed, but no, we don't do any trappings. Was your great-grandfather or grandfather, were, did they do trapping? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, it was quite a long time after the fur trade. And, you know, I think my dad and his brothers would play around with things like that. But no, they weren't, they weren't trappers, really. You know, there's, uh, we've been in the hunting business for quite a long time. In the beginning, I think hunting was really all the, the tourists were pretty much interested in doing. But before long, you know, Jackson Hole, a lot of guest ranches sprung up. That was one of the real early industries in Jackson Hole. Mm -hmm. And um, so that started people getting interested in visiting all these really cool places up in the mountains and people started doing pack trips. So do you guys offer the services of guest ranching as well, or are you just focusing on the outfitting? That's a, that's a good question. Our family is involved in a guest ranch. It's called the Lynn Canyon Ranch over in Victor, Idaho. And myself and my mom and dad and my aunt and uncle were kind of put that together. At this point, my aunt and uncle just own it. But we do have a guest ranch in the family. But, you know, in the end, it's all sort of the same. You're just welcoming people to Jackson Hole and, and showing them some of the cool things to see here. I've been to a few weddings over there. It's a magnificent spot. Yeah, that was really fun. When my when my grandparents decided they were going to sell the ranch on this side and move over there, because it's a little warmer over there. Not much, but a little bit. Maybe <laughs> you can grow a garden a little easier. And then my dad and his brothers and sisters got together and they bought the ranch from on this side from their parents. And, and that's why we're still able to be here. That's beautiful. Now let's talk about outfitting. Has much changed in the world of outfitting from when your great grandfather and Slim Pendograph were, were doing it to now when you're doing outfitting? You know, compared to everything else in this world, I don't think very much has. You know, the gears maybe evolved a little bit. We have coolers and things like that. But for the most part, you know, the saddles are really similar, doing pretty much the same thing. Um, you know, they didn't have chainsaws or anything, and we don't either. Well, let's let's clarify that. When you're out in the wilderness, you can't take a chain. You can't use a chainsaw. 
Yeah, we are we are just blessed in this country to have such a big wilderness system and to be able to go into a place uh, that's relatively untrammeled by by humans and doesn't have motors and doesn't have well sometimes there is a cell phone unfortunately but but Maybe it doesn't have wheels and it's really a pretty primitive place to visit. What's it like for the type of trips and the length of time that you would take people out now compared to when your great grandfather and grandfather were taking people out? Well, you know, the stories that we hear about my great granddad and we have some old brochures and stuff from when he was doing it, they would do two 30 day hunts a year and people would come from around the country on to the end of the rail railroad over in Victor, Idaho, and they'd get a ride over Teton Pass in a buggy or maybe on a horse. And they'd come to our ranch here in Wilson and they'd get outfitted and load up the wagon with all the supplies as they need. And they'd head off up into Grand Teton National Park or before it was a park or up into the Teton wilderness. And they'd spend a, do a 30 day hunt and they'd probably get several of the different species along the way. And share with some folks what some of those species are that we, that they would have hunted. You know, I think probably the most popular one even back then was hunting elk. You know, this is a famous place to come hunt a big elk. But there's also, you know, great mule deer, sheep, moose, maybe even bears. You know, I don't think there was a lot of grizzly bears. There might have been, but I think they would hunt a black bear. And was there a period of time when the bison, they would not have seen any bison? Or do you ever see, do the bison make it that far back into the wilderness of where you are? You know, I don't know about that. Um, I don't know if there would have been bison in the valley at that point or not. Uh -huh. um, at this point, we don't really see them. We see them when we're driving up to the trailhead, but we don't see them up in the mountains. Okay. Of course, we are on the south side of the Buffalo Plateau. So at some point, there must have been some buffalo up on top of it. Good point. Yeah. I'm curious about some of the animals that maybe we don't always see very much. So if we're hiking around here, we can see some bighorn sheep, might see some goats, but there's some other animals that certainly live out here that we know that that are out here, but we might not see them as much. Have you ever come across signs of or seen a wolverine being back there? I have. I've seen, I think, one wolverine for sure up in the Tetons uh -huh. at, at pretty close range. I was sitting on some rocks and I saw him and he kind of saw me and he walked behind the one tree that was there and disappeared. Hmm. Uh, they kind of pretend like they don't see you, but they have a pretty distinctive gait. They kind of amble along. Uh, I've seen several up in Alaska, but I think that one for sure and, and several possible sightings down here. I think you're one of the few people that I've ever spoken to that's actually seen a wolverine. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty cool animal. What are some other animals that unless people are out there in the wilderness area that you might not really see? Oh, geez. You know, I don't know. We do see grizzly bears quite a bit more yeah. and more every year. Um, and nowadays we're lucky enough to have some wolves out there. We don't see them very often, but you know, every year we'll see some wolves. Now with the wolves, is there much interaction? Uh, if you don't see them much, I'm taking it. There's probably not a whole lot of interaction between you, you as an outfitter and them. Oh no, there's not really any interaction. I mean, people worry about them and we talk about them on every trip, but they really, you know, they don't bother us or anything like that. Um, we do see and find where they've where they've caught elk a few times. Uh -huh. uh, in fact, last year when we rode into our camp, uh, there was a dead elk in the river that was probably killed by by the wolves and about 200 yards downstream from where our camp was. 
Mm. And uh, we did see a few wolves coming into that. And what do you take with you for protection against the wolves if you were to have a interaction with wolves? I, I don't worry about anything with wolves. Wolves don't attack people. It's not a problem. Okay. Um, you know, we do have to be pretty careful with the grizzly bears. So we take a variety of things. We'll have uh, certainly some bear spray. We'll have some dogs with us. And those are usually kind of give us some early warning. Grizzly bears don't prey on people either. You just have to be careful not to surprise them. Mm. So, you know, you're, you just travel like you should be traveling in groups and making noise so you don't come around the corner and, you know, and, and surprise the bears. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we'll usually have a pistol along too. And does it make a difference traveling with a dog so you don't surprise that bear? Oh, the dogs just have such a good nose. A lot of times our dogs have told us there's bears way, way before we've ever seen them. Mm-hmm. Sounds like I should hike more with a dog. Yeah. Yeah. I have an Airedale Terrier that I take with me as my bear dog. And in the wintertime, she, she's also an avalanche dog at the Jackson Mountain Resort. Oh, really? Yeah. Are you involved with some stuff out there at Jackson Hole Mountain Resort in the winter? I am. Yep. That's my, my winter job is uh, on, the, on the Jackson Hole Ski Patrol. Are you? Okay. So again, jack of all trades, you got to do something in the winter. To yeah, survive. yeah. Every successful outfitter's got a got a job in the winter as well. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. Now, where else are you taking people for your trips? That so people over the years we've collected several permits. Uh, my dad's original permit was uh, mostly in the Tetons uh, uh-huh. from the Idaho side, so the west side of the Tetons, all the way from the Yellowstone line down to Teton Pass. And so we do do several trips a year over there. A lot of those trips end up being hiking trips and they're horse supported hiking trips. Uh, We like to do go down the Teton Crest Trail every year. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the Tetons, they both have a fair amount of people in them. And they're also a pretty high elevation sensitive place to go. So we try to take a few less horses than we do on some of our other trips. So the hiking trips work quite well there. And then we like to visit the Grovance every year. We mostly go off the Grovance River up into Crystal Creek or the head of the Grovance. And it's just such a different range from both of the other ones we go to. It's it's just a really awesome place to go every year. And then um, the main place we go this at this point is the Teton Wilderness, kind of the okay. north end of Jackson Hole, just south of Yellowstone. Yeah. When when you're taking people in in the backcountry, what does the experience look like if people were to look at it from the 10,000 foot view, what would they see with your outfit taking people out into the wilderness? You know, I think what people would see if they if they could see it from the 10,000 foot level is it just slows down. Life sort of slows down and you start, you know, appreciating some of the things that just kind of breeze by on a normal day. We like to do at least a five day trip. You know, in the past, we've done quite a few shorter ones. But at this point, you know, at least five or six days and you're, you know, the first day or two, you might kind of be wondering what's next, what's next. And after a while, you can just relax and be in the wilderness mm. or to notice some of the things that you don't notice on a, on a normal busy day in town. I'm sure slowing down a little bit makes an experience of what you are offering far more enjoyable than thinking about what's next, what's next. I think so. You know, certainly a lot of the people that have come with us on trips and a lot of people come back and do many, many trips, the, they always end up doing longer and longer trips. At this day and age, people visiting the West, they need to see six different national parks in one week. And, uh, I, you know, I think what they really want to do is just get out there into the wilderness where it's quiet and they can't hear their phone ringing and 
and just relax a little bit. Well, I think there's a big difference between what you said, seeing six different parks in a week time versus experiencing one park in one in one area like what you're doing for a week period. I certainly think so. You know, to visit Yellowstone, to see some of the places up there is so different in the backcountry than looking out of a window of a tour bus. Oh, for sure. Think about what we get to do here in the spring and the fall. We just wrapped up the opportunity where the Bradley Taggart Lake roadhead, you know, from there all the way up to signal that road is closed. And the difference of the experience of riding your bike or walking that road is so different compared to if you're just driving through there. Yeah. Yeah. What a difference a month makes, you know, go there and in the first of June and try to ride your bike up that road. It's, it's amazing. And you can't blame them. Everybody wants to come and see this. It's a beautiful place. I'm curious to know what age do people begin going on a pack trip with you all and up to, and up to what age would somebody go with you? You know, that's a good question. You know, we have an insurance policy and I think, I think that says six years old is the earliest, but it depends. You know, some people like my daughter has been going on in there since she was one years old. So <laughs> she's, she's six and this will be the six years in a row that she's been going in. And then it depends, you know, if you take care of yourself and get lucky, you know, there's been on uh, some really cool trips. Two years ago, for instance, we had a trip of some great friends, did about a hundred mile loop and everybody was over 70 and there were some bumps and bruises and it wasn't always pretty, but did a pretty awesome trip and made it to over 11,000 feet and, and saw several different rivers and including the very top of the Shoshone River. I, I can't imagine to go see the origination point of some of these rivers that just is sounds magnificent yeah we're we're lucky here we live you know there's lots of places where you can consider the top of the continent but you know not far away you know the head of the columbia river starts you know the snake river drainage flows down into the columbia and and you can stand on one mountain and and on one side the the snake river is flowing off towards the west and and then there's the Green River flowing down to the Colorado, and then there's the Mississippi River starting off the other side of the mountain. Man, I get back there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's there's a really neat mountain over in the, uh, it would be the northwest side of the Wind Rivers, and I think it's called Three Rivers Mountain, where where all three rivers start off of that. That's and there's phenomenal. lots of tributaries to all three of those different rivers, but it's one one of them. Huh? How does this make you feel that? You've had the opportunity to grow up in these mountains, and now you're sharing them with with other people, this experience. Oh, I feel amazingly lucky to be able to grow up doing what I've done. I mean, every day, I mean, I'm excited to go to work. And I, you know, for me, that's kind of the secret to life. If you wake up and you're just excited to do what you've been, you're doing, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. Recently, we've uh, expanded to ha get a ranch over in Kinnear, Wyoming, just on this side of Riverton. And that's had all kinds of new challenges, learning to farm a little bit. What are you learning to farm over there? Oh, I just planted about 40 acres of alfalfa and grass. So we have about 80 acres that we can grow enough hay to get through the winter on. Okay. And um, so we're learning to be farmers. How's that going so far? It's been a challenge. It's been an adventure, but... I think we, uh, I think we got there and, you know, 
it, looking at the forecast, I might even get a little bit of rain this week. Yeah, it does look like it might rain a little bit for for sure. So is there a difference between your riding horse and your pack horse? And do you use horses or, or mules? You know, my family has really traditionally been on horseback. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a lot of outfitters around that like mules, and I have several of them, and I do like them quite a bit. But for the most part, we're riding horses. And sometimes there's horses that are way better at riding or way better in the pack string. But the most useful horse does anything you want it to do. So our best horses will do either one. And when you're back there, how many people are you taking per guest? And Well, we, uh, Anna, that's another good question. We do several different kinds of trips. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can do, we do our horse supported hiking trips. And that we can have a few more people because we don't have to worry about having too many horses. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a limit on the number of people and horses you can take into the wilderness so you don't run into too big a groups. We do progressive travel where we go anywhere in the in the Tetons or the Grovance or the Teton wilderness. And, you know, that's about eight people is a pretty good group for that. And when we make it up into our Pendergraft camp, which we'll set up around August 1st, we're, we're set up there for 12 people. Hmm. There's a few more, but we don't have to pack all the tents or anything like that in. So it makes it a little easier. What do you mean you don't have to pack the tents in? Uh, we have what's known as an assigned site there. So uh-huh. the Forest Service uh, allows us to go in there. It's a special use permit through the Forest Service, and they'll allow us to go in and set up that camp and stay longer than the typical allowed stay in the wilderness. Uh, okay. People these days, I believe, are allowed to stay for 12 days in, in the Ridger Teton wilderness in one spot until you're supposed to pick up your camp and go somewhere else. And what are you setting up to set up camp? I mean, is it big tents for cooking uh, and sleeping? We'll, we'll or... take wall tents in there. So uh-huh. we'll have six wall tents for people to sleep in and then a cook tent. You know, that's about it. There's a few other little things here and there, but it's a pretty comfortable camp. It's a camp that I think people have been using for about 100 years. Hmm. It's it's really scenic because we're right up tucked against the Buffalo Plateau. So there's almost 2,500 feet of rock right in front of us. And there's some nice lakes to visit. And it's uh, just a, a really scenic spot. The Teton Wilderness is great for horses because when that volcanic rock degrades, it turns into dirt. So it's nice dirt trails and it's kind of easy on their feet and you can go a lot of places Hmm. peter we're going to take a quick break to get a word from one of our sponsors and then we will come back and learn more about you and your outfitting group sounds great teton county solid waste and recycling estimates that approximately 3,662 tons of food waste are disposed of in the trash in teton county every year This makes food waste the next frontier material in the quest to achieve the county's goal to reduce, aiming for zero waste. For more information on Teton County, ISWR's residential and commercial food waste programs, visit tetoncountywy.gov slash recycle. Change begins with each of us, one day at a time. Peter, welcome back. We're learning a lot about what it's like to survive in Jackson as a rancher and in the outfitting that you do. When people are out on your, let's say, the Teton Wilderness trip, and and it's a multi-day night trip out there, how much of it is 
for their recreation. But when you're taking people out, should they expect that they'll have to carry some of their own weight on this type of trip? Uh, no. I mean, generally, when you start a pack trip, you know, you show up at the trailhead and you get to know your horse. So everybody has a horse. You know, occasionally people like to carry a backpack or something with some extra stuff. But you have some saddlebags and, you you know, the way people have been doing it for hundreds of years, you just tie a few things onto your onto your saddle and, and away you go. For the most part, the pack horses and stuff would carry everything you need. You know, we'll we bring our coolers back to town and and send the cook to the store every time before every trip. And and at Pendergraph Camp, that's the nice thing is we do have the the tents and stuff packed in, so you know we can travel a little lighter that way. Because you don't have to break that stuff down each time you're taking you're leaving with people and then bringing another group back in. I don't. You know, if if we're going in and out of that camp that we call the Pendergraph Camp, uh, we don't have to do that. But, you know, if you're doing progressive travel, sometimes you do, you know, and, and that can mean either going into a camp and setting it up for, you know, four or five days, or it can mean going from a different camp every day. You know, some people want to try to see as much of the Teton wilderness as you can. So you can, you know, plan out a really big loop and, you know, travel each day. And in those traveling days, you know, it can be longer, but I think the, the right number is about 10 to 15 miles somewhere in there and find another place to camp and set it all up and take all those saddles off and get your horses fed and, and make some dinner and, you know, and hopefully it doesn't rain on you, but sometimes that happens too. What in nature it does rain. So yeah, yes. it, it does tend to rain a couple times, <laughs> you know, it snows, uh, the Buffalo plateau, you know, when we're here in Jackson, we think of the big peaks as the Tetons and they are the highest and, and the most dramatic looking ones. But boy, up to the north, those plateaus are 11,000 feet. Some of the peaks there go up into the 12,000 feet, and it's miles and miles across the top of them. Hmm. Sounds like this is something everybody should make an effort to experience. <laughs> Probably not for everyone, hmm. but, uh, you know, it's a, it's a pretty cool thing to see. And and I wouldn't knock any of the other mountain ranges, too. You know, the Grovants are are really special in their own way. There's a lot of wildlife there. That's a really old mountain range. And the Tetons are the other end of the spectrum, just really dramatic. And I think it's a very young mountain range, as far as mountain ranges go. You were you you mentioned you might get, what, 10 to 15 miles a day. Is is that a lot of miles on horseback in one day? You know, it just depends on on the terrain that you're in. You know, if mm. you know where you're going, there are times when I do pack trips where I've never been there. So you're kind of just figuring it out as you go. You know, we can go a lot further than that. Sometimes when we're going into the thoroughfare, which you mentioned, that's maybe 22 miles or maybe even a few more than that to get all the way into Hawk's Rest. Uh, mm-hmm. But the trails are good and you know where you're going. Pick the horses that can really travel. And, but you know, 10 or 15 miles can be a huge day. And there's a lot that goes into it, you know, when you're out there pack tripping up, you know, before dawn and, and get the horses caught. And, uh, you know, one of the biggest tricks about pack trips is holding on to your horses because uh, most people, when they go in, you know, find a nice big meadow and let your horses go, they go right back to town. You know, horses feel safest when they're standing there at the ranch. So, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a little juggling act trying to hold on to your horses. And that's one of the reasons people really like mules. If you get a bunch of mules, they'll pick one mare and they call that the bell mare. And then if you hold on to that bell mare, all those mules will stay there. Uh, we took we typically use horses and not too many mules, but, you know, our, and our horses have done it a lot so they can feel comfortable in a lot of different places. But we hobble most of our horses. So, you you know, you tie their front two feet together. And they can move around and, you know, you think it's really going to slow them down. 
But every once in a while, they'll go 20 miles with those hobbles on. No way. Absolutely. Yeah, they get really good at them. And we try really hard not to make that happen because, uh, you know, some of them are really good at it and then they'll, they'll take a horse that isn't quite as good at it and it'll kind of bugger up his ankles a little bit. Have you woken up before when you, you're like, where'd my horses go? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's a, it's a desperate moment. It happens less and less, but certainly when I was younger doing this, you know, I started really kind of taking over right after college. I went to school up in Alaska and um, that's sort of when I took over the outfit from my dad. And yeah, I've had many times when I wake up and there's no horses there. Uh, a lot of people like to put bells on their horses so they can kind of wake up in the middle of the night and hear the bells and they know their horses are still around. I don't, I, the bells kind of keep me awake, so I don't use bells, but you know, you know, pretty quick when you wake up and your horses are gone. Uh, I would imagine so. That and it can be a long walk. We're really lucky with our Pendergraph camp, which we do spend, oh, not most of our time, but a lot of our time. The horses don't leave there. It's kind of a, a box canyon and we're camped at the bottom end of it and there's enough grass and they, they just feel comfortable enough there that they'll stay for a long time. You know, horses need to eat and they need to drink, but more than anything, they want to feel safe. Uh-huh. It's almost so you want somebody to stay up all night watching the horses, make sure they don't go off on you if you're not in the pentagraph <laughs> camp. Yeah, finding that employee is a little tricky. Yeah. Well, nobody probably wants to stay up all night. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm not doing that. No, I, I wouldn't no, want to do you that. Know, when we're out there, we usually, we'll always have some horses around, so tied up at night. You know, when we get into a camp, we'll start feeding them right away. So we'll have some of those horses will go out and eat for a couple hours and they'll come back in and, and stand around all night. And then in the morning they go back out and get another, get their mm. breakfast. And so we've worked out a pretty good system and we don't have too many runways. What's it like finding people to come and help you operate these outfitting trips nowadays? Are, are you able to find people? You know, I've been pretty lucky to have some great people that have come along. For some people, it's sort of, you know, a bucket list. They want to come to a summer and see a lot of places, spend a bunch of time on horseback. It's a lot more rare for us to find people that want to make this their living. What an amazing bucket list to fill to spend a few months out in, in, in the wilderness area. I think it's awesome that you're still able to find people because it seems though in today's labor market, it seems harder and harder to find people that want to get their hands dirty a little bit. Yeah, it certainly is. And, and, you know, that's what it takes, you know, when we're, you know, everyone calls up and they want to be a wrangler, you know, they want to work with horses. Uh, but really that job in, in, includes doing dishes and setting up tents and everything else that goes into making, making a trip work. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we've been pretty lucky to find some awesome people that, uh, are, uh, you know, roll up their shirt sleeves and go to work. And how old were you when you started helping your dad with outfitting trips? You know, I, I don't think when I was a really ki tiny kid, we went out very much. But I remember my first pack trip was with my, my grandparents when my grandma was still alive. And I think I rode on with her on her saddle. And I, I can vaguely remember it. At least I've heard the story enough times that I remember it, that I, I lost my boots and I didn't say anything. So we had to go back down the trail looking for my boots. But And that was when my dad's camp was up in Bitch Creek over on the north end of the Tetons. Mm -hmm. And um, and then I, I think when I was, you know, 10, 12 in that region, I started helping my dad every summer, spending most of my summer vacation out with him. 
and then I went to school up in Alaska. And, and after that, I almost stayed up there, but then I decided I needed, needed some more horses in my life. So I'm back here and, uh, and we've just been buying them and buying them. Now we have too, way too many, too many horses. Well, you know, horses are not easy to keep around. They take a lot of work, but you know, we have all winter long, we have way too many. And then when we get to the summer, we don't have quite enough. Do you keep your horses on your ranch in the winter or, or do you guys ship your horses off to a, a winter pasture? You know, we've always pretty much kept them around here, at least quite a few of them. Uh, we do have a few cows that we keep around the ranch as well. But a couple of years ago, we got the opportunity to buy a place over near Riverton in Kinnear, Wyoming. Right. And uh, it's a lot warmer place and a lot less snow over there. So this last couple of years, uh, we've been shipping our horses over there and our cows. Uh, and it's a little different. You know, I think almost for the last 120 years, my family's been hooking up a team of horses to go out and feed the animals every day all mm -hmm. winter long. And now we're not doing that. It's a little bit sad in some ways. We still have all this, you know, some wagons and some harnesses and sleighs around and uh, kind of wondering what to do with them. And when you are on these outfitting trips, is it now with your family all hands on deck? And now that you have your uh, oh, I wish daughter. it was every trip like that. Uh, and we're getting closer to that. Uh, my daughter's six years old and she's not a lot of help yet, but uh, <laughs> she's getting better and better. And, um, and my wife comes on quite a few of the trips. But yeah, I think every year Charlie gets to go on a few more. Um, this will be her sixth year going into camp. Uh -huh. So hopefully she can carry on the tradition. Yeah, that'll be beautiful for that to, to keep that going. Yeah, she'll, you know, we won't force it on her. Everyone's got to pick their own path, but um, she'll certainly have that option. Yeah. So what does the summer look like for you? Is it look pretty full? You know, it's going to be an interesting season, you know, with as much snow as there is up there in the hills. We've postponed the start of our season and, you know, our first trips are always into the thoroughfare. And mm -hmm. it's, it's, uh, it's a tough trip because it's 20-something miles in. The horses are usually not in shape. You have to make it over Trail Creek Pass, which isn't terribly high, but even middle of June, you'll run into snow up there. And it can also be about 25 miles of bogs to go through. And occasionally the mosquitoes are just horrendous up there. But we get to go in there and fish for some of those Yellowstone cutthroat that are coming up out of Yellowstone Lake and spawning. Mm -hmm. And almost every trip we've been there, the people have caught the biggest cutthroat they've ever caught in their lives. Hmm. So that's kind of cool. Uh, we're going to start that about middle of June. And then uh, we work with some kids, usually early season, and do a couple kids trips. And then we'll do a few progressive trips. And then we'll go set up our Pendergraft camp. And, and then on towards fall, when the elk start bugling, we'll go elk hunting. I, I'm interested to hear once when June comes around, what your trips are like running in with all the snow and how slow it has been to melt this year. Yeah, that keeps me up at night occasionally. But you know, it is what it is, and um, something will work out. There's plenty of things you can stay up and worry about. There's always something you can stay up and, and worry about, for sure. Well, Peter, if somebody wants to reach out and connect with you all and set up a trip, how can they do that? Uh, we have a website, pendagraphoutfitters.com, and I don't think we're too hard to find around in Jackson Hole area. You know, uh, it's it's actually a great time to be in this industry because you know and you know 50 years ago a lot of people had their own horses and they did these trips on their own and it was a it was a huge way that people recreated around jacks and either hiking trips or pack trips but now a lot of people would like our help and so you know it's a popular thing well i'm i'm thrilled that a industry of outfitting has changed so little over the years and is being 
handed down from different generations and is continuing continuing the course for people to experience such remote areas of our of our country and see things the land as you said earlier that's really untouched by by humans uh, i think oh, it's, it's phenomenal it's absolutely a wonderful thing and it's you know it's really special and one of the things that we really try to convey to everyone that we take out there that it's it's extremely important to protect because mm -hmm. you know there there are people that aren't that interested in having all these wild places like that so you know i think for people to get out there and appreciate it that's what in the end will protect it mm -hmm. for sure well peter I so appreciate your time and putting up with all the technical difficulties today. It's been wonderful having this opportunity to talk to you and learn about your outfitting business and the fact that you, in the wintertime, ski patroller, keeping people alive and yeah, safe air. my safe. horse for some cat skis. Yeah. <laughs> From outfitting to skier. It's just the, what you got to do out here. It, it's what people you know, have always and, done. And that's what keeps it interesting, you know, and get to the end of the fall and I'm tired of saddling horses in a snowstorm. Like, you know, I just can't wait to get out there and go make some turns and powder snow. And by springtime, I'm ready to get back on my horse. Oh, I'm sure. Well, you had uh, one quick question. So let's put the skiing and the horses together. Have you ever done the ski joring? No, I have not. Okay. We do ski during with our kids around the yard. Uh-huh. But uh, yeah, it's uh, a lot of people get hurt ski joring. Sometimes the horses even get hurt. So no, I don't. Mm -hmm. I don't do a heck of a lot of ski during. But all right, it looked like fun. It, I, I think you got to be a brave person to get out there and get hauled by one of those horses and do the ski during. Yeah, you know they're going pretty fast, and I have some good buddies that are good at it. And you know, and some of them actually won some money doing it. Good for them. You know what I like when I'm skiing is gravity. Not only is it the law, it's a real good idea. That sounds fair. Well, Peter, thank you so much for your time. You enjoy your day and keep on carrying on the tradition of your family history. Thank you. All right, Stefan. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Well, alrighty, sir. Thank you. Okay. Good luck. Take care. Bye. To learn more about Peter Lynn and Pendergraft Outfitters, visit the JacksonHoleConnection.com, episode number 244. Thank you, everybody, for listening today. Get out and share this podcast with your friends and families, Instagram and Facebook. Do you know if somebody would like to be a guest, send us their name. We'd love to have them. Take care, everybody. Look forward to seeing you back here for the next episode of the Jackson Hole Connection.